Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, May the 30th, 2023. Regular viewers and listeners now have been away a few days. Um, as it happened, I was in the great city of Istanbul in Turkey uh, with friends watching the election, being on vacation. And one of the most memorable things I did actually in Istanbul, uh, I've been there many times, but I've never actually been to the subterranean city within Istanbul itself, the Cisterna Basilica, which is a remarkable edifice. Uh, it was built in the 3rd or the 4th century, and it was forgotten by locals right until the 16th century when it was rediscovered. And for people listening, you'll have to imagine my photographs. For people watching, uh, it's a true subterranean place full of remarkable imagery. I had a wonderful time taking photographs down there. It's a real place, and perhaps... There's something about subterranean spaces that make them re more real, more truthful, uh, more visible and more profound than places above ground. That might be the opinion of my guest today, who is the author of a series called Silo. Uh, many of you will be familiar with it. It's just launched a Apple TV series, which is the big hit of the season. Uh, Hugh Howey uh, is uh, the writer of this series. Many of you be familiar with these three short stories that make up the series, Wall Shift and Dust. And Hugh is joining us from his home in New York City. Uh, Hugh, have you been to Istanbul? Have you looked at that subterranean city there? It's really a remarkable experience. I haven't been to the Cisterna, but I, I've been to Istanbul a couple of times. I love it. It's it's a magical city. Um one of those places you travel to and you feel like you're somewhere other. Yeah, I have to admit, I'm rather irritated to be back in San Francisco, uh, which has its own problems, not that Istanbul is a perfect place. So how did you come up with this idea of building a, a narrative around essentially the truth of a, a subterranean existence? Have you always been a man who digs one way or the other, Hugh? Uh, I think the, the underground portion was secondary to the wall screen. Um, the main um, uh, invention, if you will, of this uh, world and story is that the people of this uh, silo only have one view of the outside world. And it's a filtered view of this uh, single screen. And they don't know whether to believe it or what it means and what's out there. And so the being underground was just a way of limiting their knowledge of the outside world. Uh, and, and all of that came from uh, just a, a love of, um, and a lot of time thinking about Plato's cave analogy. Um, Plato liked to say that um, we couldn't really know the true forms of things. We, we were just like in a cave with a fire behind us and we just see the shadows on the wall. And judging from the shadows, we tried to deduce a lot about reality. And um, I think that's become more true as we get more and more of our view of the outside world and our news from a limited number of screens. Yeah, it's funny that Plato's cave seems to come up more and more on the show. Um, of course, the scene in The Republic, the most famous scene in The Republic from his most 
famous book. Why is that book and, and that imagery of the cave, why is it so eternal? Why does it resonate two or 3,000 years later? It's a great question. I, I think the more we uh, draw back the curtain, the more we know about the universe, the more the gaps of our understanding get even bigger. It's, uh, it's this kind of conundrum where uh, the more knowledge you acquire, the more um, uh, ignorance you become aware of. So, um, you know, theoretical physicists keep discovering something new and it just raises like 10 questions rather than giving us definitive answers. Um, you know, we, uh, we, we think that we see the world around us, but we see a very limited amount of the uh, light spectrum. We hear a very limited amount of the frequency of, of the sound that's in the um, atmosphere around us. Um, there are other animals that have, you know, different senses that lay outside of our uh, boundaries. So they, they see the, the shadows of this um, cave. If you'll continue the analogy, they see things differently than we do. Um, so that's the physical limitations, but then we also have biases and, and all kinds of mental limitations. Um, and uh, I think the, the, in order to live a, as full a life as possible, we have to kind of imagine the things beyond our, uh, physical senses and try to acquire as many concepts and thoughts that are beyond our, our biases and our limited, um, you know, in, environment and the data that we uh, consume. Is there something about America and Americans, Hugh, that makes us m more liable to believe in in science and the truth around science? Because, of course, Plato's cave, the metaphor of the cave, was created in a, in a pre-scientific world. Plato himself wasn't anti-science, but he certainly wasn't scientific, nor was Socrates. Has science helped us in any way make sense of reality, or do you think it's just a great seduction of making us believe we can find the truth, dig for the truth, but actually the, the more we dig, the less we know? I think both are true. Um, I, I think, you know, science, and, you know, it depends on how you defend, define science because the scientific method is a modern invention. But I think Plato and Aristotle and, um, you know, really thinkers going back to the ancient Egyptians and before were uh, employing science as the best they could. I think even there's a long period of time where religion was a type of science. Um, they, the answers they came up with were the best that they had at the time. And we look back now and we think it's simplistic. We, we see superstition, but uh, reality is, you know, pretty far. It's, it's almost as bizarre as some of the magic and the, the God tales that people came up with. Um, so I think each individual has a different relationship with science. So for some, it's, it's profound and illuminating and it, it improves our lives and gives us more options and control over our behaviors and thoughts and our environment. And, and for others, it's, um, it's a pretty easy salve or a, a very dangerous like um, uh, a glimpse of how much there is to know. And then instead of embracing the parts that we don't, you know, it can be frustrating. And, and science has also led to a lot of, um, you know, terrible inventions that have, that have brought harm. So I, I love that it's complex, but I, for me, it's a, it's definitely a net gain. Um, uh, the, the, the challenge is like, if we, if science takes us to a direction that leads to the end of civilization, which is a possibility, then 
will the the acquisition of knowledge uh, along the way be be worth it, or will we be better living a much smaller primitive life, um, one that doesn't dominate our ecosystem as much? Um, we don't uncover as many truths about the universe, but then we also don't develop the tools that are that's just, that are able to to end our own existence or you know a lot of life on Earth. So. Take your pick. I think both have a lot of valid arguments. It's not a surprise, uh, thinking about it, that you should love Istanbul. Your, your love affair in your life, along with your books, is your sailing. You've talked about sailing around the world, your love of the water. And, of course, Istanbul is, is a city defined geographically by water, by uh, the reality of, um, of, of water, both above ground and below ground. That's why I think the system basilica in, in, in Istanbul is a quintessentially Istanbul-like uh, experience. What is it, Hugh, uh, about water that makes you, if not religious, certainly a believer in something or other? It definitely makes me spiritual. Um, I don't know. You know, there's been some interesting recent research about um, our relationship with water. They can do functional MRIs with people in the presence of the ocean, and they, um, uh, they they find a level of calm and happiness that's very measurable and 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 obvious. You know, they do a lot of controlled um, studies about this. I think there's a book called The Blue Mind that looks into some of these. Um, yeah, we've done a number of shows on water with novelists, with nonfiction writers, all of whom have built um, a, 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 some sort of spiritual narrative, uh, either imaginary or, 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 or factual around water. Yeah, and maybe some of it is imaginary. I, I My own um, uh, thinking is that we probably evolved in a closer relationship with water than we did with the prairie, the, the traditional um, uh, African savanna story about human evolution. I think is um, misleading. I think we probably evolved much more in in commune with um, coastal areas. Um, fossil preservation is just not not great. So the story we tell is one of like where fossils are preserved in very arid environments that are geologically stable over a long period of time. But um, uh, we we share a lot of traits in common with the aquatic mammals, and um, we have a an innate mammalian breathing reflex. We have webbed hands and we have very little fur. And these are, um, you know, they, the fact that we're bipedal, I think points to a semi-aquatic past. So I, I, it might be in our bones, but it definitely, there's definitely something there that's nearly universal. I just saw a, a map recently that like how much of Americans live in this 100 mile border, which is mostly along the water. And it's, uh, it was like 80% of our... Yeah, it's uh, interesting. I, I never really thought about it. Maybe it's the relationship with the water on the so-called coastal elites or the people who live on the Pacific and Atlantic coast. Maybe that distinguishes their, their politics, their epistemology, their faith or lack of faith from the people who live in the heartland. Your, your book and the Apple TV show, uh, your, your series Silo and the, the new series is described as dystopian. Um, is that a, a, a fair analysis? Is there an environmental quality? Did you write it with the big D word, dystopian in mind, or it just turned out that way? No, I didn't write it with a dystopian mindset. Um, uh, it's also not, you know, um, 
it's a bit of a spoiler here, but uh, there's no environmental collapse. It's um, uh, it, it's more of a psychological drama. Oh, no, CSU, you couldn't throw that one in too? Or there was enough? What's that? You no. couldn't throw that one in as a, as a freebie? Which one? The uh, the environmental collapse. We just needed a, a psychological one. Yeah, well, there, there is a reason that the world is uh, as it is outside and one that I'm not shy of exploring in the books and that we will hopefully get uh, enough seasons to explain in the TV show. Um, because I, I, I really had set a uh, challenge to myself, like how could you uh, end humanity if you wanted to? And it started with this. The first question is like, would someone want to? And I think the answer is yes. Like if we, there's this thought experiment, what if we woke up tomorrow with a button around all of our necks and it said, if you push this button, you know, every human will die. Um, I give us less than a second. You know, there's, there's a lot of people on the planet that would push that button for various reasons. And I find that fascinating. And it, then the next question is, will we ever develop that button? Will we develop a technology that could do that? If the answer is yes, then we've already established that, you know, we wouldn't um, uh, hesitate collectively someone to push that button. And, and as a science fiction writer, my challenge then is like, well, what would that button look like and how could it arise? And uh, so I don't see anything dystopian about it. I think this is, these are real questions that we should ask ourselves. And it, it goes back to the Fermi paradox. Like when we look out at the night sky, there's a lot of stars out there and we don't get a hint of any kind of signal from any of them. And this raises religious implications and it really raises um, scientific implications and to not be curious about that i think is to miss out on one of the the great mysteries of our existence so, so let me rephrase the question you, your 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 serious silo is is built around a subterranean city that extends 144 stories beneath the surface it's a place in a sense or symbolically of darkness why isn't that dystopian should we think of subterranean existence um as um if not utopian certainly perhaps normal uh i don't know about normal i think uh i think there's nothing normal about any of this like if you just look around uh what humanity is and what it's doing is bizarre like uh we we have <laughs> we if, you know if you if you really look at a time lapse from a distance we look like little ants who are just piling things up in cities you know just like we're we're consumed with um uh, making big piles of things and um, it, all the other little details as you zoom in are just as a, just as uh, absurd. Um, and I'm fascinated by it, but I, I think um, this, this could be a utopian story. I think it's too early for people to say whether this is dystopian or utopian. Um, what if the, this is the only way that humanity survives something like, what if this was the answer to the most dire question ever raised and that the only way through was this, um, then it's a hopeful story and it's a story of overcoming very long odds. So I can, as a writer, I get to imagine all kinds of fun things and I can think of dozens of ways that this could be a utopian story and dozens of ways that it's dystopian. But I guess it all depends on what you define by what the surface is because you could argue that I don't know, the universe is uh, the surface and we all live beneath that. So it depends exactly. on your definition of the surface and what 
exactly subterranean means. It, it requires, I mean, subterranean, of course, refers to living beneath the earth. Uh, how important is uh, the physical in your work? As a science fictional writer um, who, who plays around with reality, are there some things that you need to take seriously? Uh, not too many. Uh, I think not laws of physics or things like that. I think those are fun to bend to tell the best story. The things that I take seriously are human nature. Like I think that characters' motivations and their decisions should follow from um, evolutionary psychology, from who they are as individuals. Uh, I, I think there should be an emotional resonance with a great story. So if someone is scared or they fall in love or they're um, overcoming long odds, like we as the reader or the viewer needs to be a part of that journey and, and feel what they're feeling. And so I, I think it's, I think emotional sincerity is much more important than getting, you know, facts or laws correct. One of the things that occurred to me being underground in Istanbul was the absence of noise. Is this something that plays out in, in, in silo uh, when you're above ground? It's a much noisier kind of existence. Yeah, confinement in general uh, changes everything. So I spent a lot of time working on yachts. I spent um, a lot of time working under yachts as a, as a diver. And um, when you're in a confined space, and it's something that I went into with another book of mine, Beacon 23, about how um, sounds can drive you crazy if you're if you can't escape them. If you're just uh, yeah, and Beacon Twenty Three. Um, the subtitle is Little Noises. So. Yeah, that's the first part of Beacon Twenty Three. It opens with someone dealing with these kinds of of, of sounds. Um, and yeah, I think um, anytime one sense is limited, the other senses get heightened. So having no view of the horizon um, is gonna change things. I imagine smell and taste and, and sound would all become a bigger part of our lives if we were living in a confined Yeah, space. and it reminds me of those animals, of course, and I'm sure you've given a great deal of thought to it, these, these sorts of animals that live subterranean. Uh, uh, do you think that humans have evolved differently or would they have evolved differently had they really existed purely as a subterranean species? Yeah, for sure. We, we, our, our vitamin system would be a, very different. Like we are partly solar powered. Uh, we really don't do well if we're away from um, UV light. So, uh, but that doesn't mean UV light's necessary for life. There's plenty of animals that, that get by without it. So we would be more like them in that way. Um, uh, it's hard to know what other, I mean, you know, we're capable of echolocation. There are people that, that aren't even blind that just train themselves how to do it. Um, and it might be something Could that you we make would... us more. I mean, you, you began that we began this conversation with a reference to Plato's cave, which, of course, is the intellectual foundations for monotheism and Christianity or Platonism that developed into Christianity. Do you think we would be more or less spiritual had we been a subterranean species? Do you think living a gr a, a, above ground makes us? more susceptible, more prone to a belief in, in the gods? I'd have to, I'm just guessing, but there's, I don't see how we would be um, uh, more spiritual living underground. I mean, so much of our spirituality comes from uh, 
the things that are bigger than us, the heavens, mm. uh, the oceans, the, the, the wind in the trees, mm. the, the movement of the moon through the sky. Like these are, these are things that even if you're not a believer, you're, you stop and take pictures with your cell phone and, and, and are in awe of. So um, I, I think for me, a lot of my spirituality has come from just feeling small, um, being in the presence of a humpback whale that's like looking at you with an eye as big as a, a basketball and, and seeing that you're looking back at it. Um, there's something spiritual in that. Um, here's something much larger than me looking at me or laying under the stars in the middle of the ocean under a, a, a cloudless sky like um it floors you i don't i don't care what your background is there's no way to be there and not be be moved no. yeah it's, it, you, you say it floors you it puts you above the floor tell us a little bit about the characters in in silo because there are people who who, who live underground uh, did you have to dig into your imagination to imagine human beings who never saw the sunlight i like that play on words dig into my imagination um, I, I definitely, had, well, I mean, the whole story starts with someone kind of going mad for not being outside. I think um, suppressing our uh, like ancient drives and motivations does um, terrible things to us. Being cut off from our tribe, being isolated makes you go crazy. It's the punishment we turn to when prison isn't enough. You know, within jail, if you're worse, they, they put you in solitary confinement. And I think being cut off from the uh, outside and cut off from the environment is a similar kind of punishment to being ostracized from our tribe. So um, I, I don't think this is a, a, a good place for the human mind. And that's where the story really starts. Is it coincidental that many faiths have imagined hell in a, a subterranean context? No, I don't think it's a coincidence at all. And I think, um, you know, there's, I, I love these kind of universal uh, human traits. It points to something very deep. Um, I was uh, at a dog park recently and there was a huge mound in the middle of the dog park and the dogs just loved being up there because they have, they, they can survey. It's harder to get the jump on them um, throughout human military history. Getting the high ground um, has been critical. So there's, there's a sense that like up is better and down is worse. And, and that sense might, you know, start from, from just that's that kind of innate territorial and geographical um, uh, feeling that being up, you know, gives you some advantage and that can pervade, you know, the rest of our thinking and, and our biases, but we definitely think like the heavens are up there and the underworld is a bad place. We also know that, when you're when you're dead, you know, even if you don't formally bury people, though we have been doing that for a long, long time. But that's like that's that's where you go when you're no longer doing anything interesting, when you're lifeless. And when you have life, you might be climbing a tree, you might be exploring that hill, you're above above the ground for your limited time here. So there's a inherent bias that that arises from that. Are there people who live above ground you who you think have a better understanding of subterranean existence, perhaps? Blind people, people are not able to use their eyes. They would have a huge advantage. Um, I, that'd be an interesting story. You know, uh, I'm sure it's been explored by somebody, but um, every story has been explored by somebody. Yeah, it? it's so true. 
it's so funny when people point out like similarities between stories. I they see it as like a, a plagiarism, and I I know from experience that those people probably have no knowledge of each other except that they have a shared humanity. So I don't see like uh, I, I when I see similarities between stories, I'm like, there we are, we're all the same people. It's beautiful. The, the story of your story is is a really encouraging one, particularly for for writers with aspirations of having their work read. You began the series in 2011. You initially wrote Wool as a standalone short story, and you self-published. And since then, it's become a huge hit. Now it's been picked up by Apple TV. Did you self-publish because you couldn't find a publisher or you didn't want to deal with the, the irritation of having to deal with editors and a formal publishing house? Well, my first book was with a small publishing house and I loved working with my editor. I learned a lot of my uh, writing craft from, from getting suggestions and edits on my first, my first novel. Um, but what I learned through the publication process is that everything that they do is something that I can do. And there are a lot of one-time benefits of pagination, cover art and uh, copy editing. And in exchange, they take, uh, you know, most of the money and they, um, they control the pricing. You can't, do price promotions and things like that. And from that one experience, I realized, you know, if I just want to write stories for the love of it, I'm much better off doing it on my own. And I, I never really dreamed of having a career at this. I just wanted to tell great stories and have them available to the handful of people who wanted to read them. And doing it my doing it on my own just gave me so much freedom and allowed me to uh, write like short stories. Like the publishers have no room for stuff like that. Like yeah, and you, you've done it right. I mean, then you went on and you 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 signed a, a print-only deal for half a million dollars with Simon & Schuster. Did you know what you were doing or it all was a sort of a magical experience that it somehow made sense at the time and it's worked out really well for you? It's, it's been a lot of both. I didn't know what I was doing with the story and that I started the short story that became a trilogy of full-length novels over time. But I knew with the publishing deals, um, when I, my agent reached out to me, she said, uh, the thing that caught my eye, because a lot of agents were reaching out, she said, you probably don't need an agent. But if you wanted to have a conversation, I'd love to. And I was like, well, here's someone who understands that I don't need an agent. But when we when we talked, she's like, look, I want to have uncomfortable conversations with publishers. Like, I want to do deals that haven't been done. I've been trying to do this for a while, but it's hard to have leverage. So who's you know, your agent? Leverage. I'm sure a lot of people would like to talk to her. Yeah, her name's Kristen Nelson, and yeah, everybody wants her. She's one of the best in the industry, but um, good luck. I hope you've written something captivating enough to get her attention because it's very difficult to, to land an agent of her caliber, but I hope, I hope everybody can have someone like her in their writing career at some point. But she she wanted to have conversations with publishers about um, you know putting a time limit on deals. So the deal with Simon & Schuster you mentioned like we're no longer with them. We got all the rights back after five years, and then we got to go out and and you know go to auction again. And and the the next deal we did was for set for seven figures, and that was after the book had been out for for five years. And we're going to get the rights back again in a few years and see if other people are interested. And that's something we believe in that um, authors shouldn't have to sell their rights for their lifetime plus. 50 years. It's a, the terms of copyright that authors put up with are just really absurd. So what does a publisher do that you can't do? What do they bring to the table that's special? They do a lot of amazing things. Um, if, if the if the contracts make sense and the terms make sense, working with publishers has been one of the you know highlights of my writing 
career. And I've worked with over 40 of them around the world. Um, you get great editorial input from top publishers. You get access to um, retail partners that's very difficult to get by yourself when you're self-publishing. Um, you get to work with some of the best cover artists and uh, designers and, and marketers. It's um, there's, there's, there are huge advantages, but I think um, it's easy to give away too much in, in a standard publishing contract. And I don't know that the return is worth what a, a standard contract asks you to give up. As we joked uh, before we went live, Hugh, you're one of the thousands of executive producers on this new Apple TV Plus show, Silo. What has your experience in turning uh, this very successful book into a, a, um, an online television show? What has that taught you? What new experiences and perhaps irritation has, has it brought? Well, I haven't had any irritation. It's been a dream. Um, you know, I... The first deal I did was with Ridley Scott and Steve Zalian and 20th Century Yeah, Fox. well, why don't you start with Ridley Scott? Yeah, it's, it's hard you know, it's, to start there because I'm guessing yeah, after that, it's hard it's to amazing. Going, right. Getting an email from Ridley about how much he loves your characters and your writing, it's like, it's it's just fun. It's like getting, you know, a you know, fan email, but like with a bit of a bonus that it's someone who knows story. Um, we got I got to, you know, work with screenwriters and, and directors over the years to turn this into a film and you know, there's no part of me that was like, when's this going to get made? I, I was just enjoying the ride the whole way. Is there a Blade Runner? I mean, the Ridley Scott, of course, directed Blade Runner. Is there a, a, a Blade Runner-like quality to, to the work, do you think, both visually and in, in, in writing form? I mean, Blade Runner, of course, was, was, was based on a very famous short story about sheep. Yeah, yeah. Do, uh, and do... Uh, not of sleep of sheep electric sheep yeah yeah so phil k dick is is one of my favorite short story writers and he's always questioning reality so i think um you know having uh plato's cave as a as a um inspiration is kind of uh also comes from a lot of reading phil k dick he was always wondering what reality was and i think reality is very different for him as an individual too um, but, you know, just making being an executive producer just meant that I had some creative input. I was in the writer's room and, and got to help block out the episodes and get access to dailies and visit the set and have conversations with the actors. So Rebecca and I have had a lot of conversations um, over the last uh, couple of years as she's like really dove into this role. Um, yeah, so it comes with some advantages. But like you said, there's a lot of every executive producer gets that title for some different reason. Uh, most of the executive producers on the show are more critical to the show than I am. Yeah, I'm thinking um, of uh, Blade Runner. Of course, we're living in increasingly a Blade Runner-like replicant world where we can't distinguish human beings from smart machines. You, uh, you talked to Wyatt about your new show and you said that the same day AI movies are coming soon. Is there a dystopian element to that? What's your take on AI movies and chat GPT and this hysteria for better or worse about AI, especially where I'm talking to you from in Silicon Valley. Yeah, it, it is a hysteria and it's a hysteria in both directions, you know, for the, for the positives and the negatives. Um, I think we will get, um, I'm, I'm already watching some generative AI videos that are just captivating. Uh, one with, I saw recently of a marble statue like dancing and um, it, it was just 
created out of a few lines of text and it's hard to turn away from it. It's gorgeous. Um, I think, you know, the consumers will decide where this goes. So my, my feeling is that there'll be some areas where generative uh, video and text will keep people engaged, but I don't think it's going to replace the human in this because I, I want to, I want to hear stories that come from humans. Um, and I'm going to want to tell my story, even if an AI can tell a better version of it. Doesn't... Have you looked at Chat GPT as a as a, a writer's friend at all? We did a show recently with Stephen Marsh, the Canadian writer who's just come out with a a fairly serious, well received AI enabled uh, thriller. What's your take on uh, the future for real humans, real creative writers like yourself in our AI age, which seems for better or worse unavoidable? It is unavoidable. I think it'll get more difficult for people to get discovered because there's going to be a lot more competition for eyeballs. It's not going to change the way I write. I, I am not interested in, in writing novels with AI. Uh, I am interested in writing other things like blog posts. And and for me, ChatGPT is a fun tool into collective human um, uh, word vectors and conversations and thoughts and ideas. Um, and future versions of AI would be even more interesting as um, I think ethical sages, I think AI will be far more uh, moral and ethical than, than the average human and that we will learn a whole lot about being better people through it. And I think that'll be one of the more surprising things that comes out of future developments in AI. Are there forms, do you think, Hugh, which are more or less vulnerable to AI? You, your work has been turned into the, the Apple TV series. There's also a comic book adaption. We've done lots of comic book stuffs, and they're very much in vogue at the moment. Do you think that animated writers, for example, are, are a little... Uh, more secure in their work than just text people. Yeah, I think the 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 fruit that AI will start plucking hangs at various levels. Um, I don't know how many people know, but a lot of like baseball box scores and stock analysis has been written by algorithms for a decade now, um, and they're in the newspaper. They're it's just um, they're very formulaic, very easy to write if you have the data. And um, I think as the AI gets better, what it can do. Uh, better and quicker than us will improve. And I don't know the order that it will come in, but for instance, with films, um, I think uh, hand-drawn animation will be threatened before um, live action uh, just because it's, you don't have to be perfect with animation. It can be stylized. It can look like claymation. Um, so, you know, the order that things will get disrupted will be interesting to watch. Um, I'm not sure that text will go before video. I think there's some parts of the generative AI video right now that are really captivating in a way that a lot of the, the text isn't. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, for people a little bit younger than, than you or I, Hugh, just starting out, can they still pull off a Hugh Howey, self-publish and become an international star with their work being turned into an Apple TV Plus series where they're the executive producers, or is that really harder and harder to do these days? It's nearly impossible at any point in in human history to, to do what happened to me. And I, I, I say that it happened to me. It's not something that I pulled off. Um, I just happened to be writing stories, and one happened to go viral because it was at the right time of, of the Kindles 
um, development and um, it caught the right eyeballs and, and here I am. But this, this is a miracle for me and for when I did it. Is it a little bit harder now? But yeah, what's what's a little harder than impossible? You know, it's like, you know, adding a few few decimal points to infinity. Um, I've got some of my favorite writers um, haven't had anything adapted. So it's just super rare. There's a lot of luck involved. And I, so I think saying like, if, if anyone out there thinks, man, I had a, had a good shot at selling millions of books and having a huge career and getting a, a TV show made, and now that AI is here, it's not going to happen to me. Like there's everything about that idea is wrong. Like you didn't have a great chance before. You don't have a great chance now. And if that's why you're doing it, you're also in it for the wrong reasons. So like, I, I don't even not have a conversation with someone who thinks that this has lessened their, their ability to make a living at this because that's, that shouldn't be really a factor to begin with. We began this conversation, Hugh, talking about Plato's cave and belief. You mentioned the miracle of your own story. Let's end with some advice from you to aspiring writers. They may not be able to pull off a, a Hugh Howey-style miracle, but they can make a living as writers. What advice would you give to people beginning their careers now, both in, well, particularly in fiction and perhaps in science fiction, which is an increasingly popular genre should be yeah look how the life that we've had in the last few years we've lived through a global pandemic and now we can talk to ai we're, we're increasingly living a science fiction reality so it's no, not surprising um the two main pieces of advice i give to aspiring writers is to read a lot and read the best stuff that you can um and then my second uh, piece of advice is to write for yourself and because you love it write it write as a passion if you're going into it thinking how to monetize it, you're going to not only get frustrated sooner, you're probably going to be disappointed. But if you write because you love it, then a lot of good things can happen uh, afterwards. And finally, Hugh, what does that mean? You said you were living in a science fiction reality world. What happens when the world begins to resemble this bizarre place that you as a science fiction writer imagined We've had this conversation before about the work of someone like Don DeLillo, who in White Noise imagined this bizarre, surreal train crash. And recently, it's as if the train had read DeLillo's White Noise and, and replicated that. What, what, what does the world, how, how does viewing the world change? Does it seem to you as if watching the world is rather like reading a book? Yeah, I think as, as the world gets more complex and technology uh, keeps changing so rapidly that that we feel a little untethered. I think we need to get back to uh, a lot of the original conversations that um, you know Plato uh, wrangled his his compatriots into, and talk about ethics and morality and being human and living a good life. Like that needs to be more of a concern than how do we um, maximize our uh, our wealth and how do we achieve status and fame. Um, I, th I think we should be, you know, talking about logic and, and, and morals more from a very young age and have really uncomfortable conversations in adulthood. And I hope we get back to that. Maybe we'll just, uh, Hugh, maybe we'll just send everyone down to the Basilica system in Istanbul. That might be a good beginning of your education. <laughs> I'd love to go visit it. The picture, your pictures look incredible. <laughs> 